0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, John Roy Price. He is the author of The Last Liberal Republican and Insider's Perspective on Nixon's Surprising Social Policy, a book that's just out from University Press uh, of Kansas. Uh, Thank you, John, for agreeing to be on the show. My pleasure, Dan. So as a historian, I am really struck by your work and grateful that you have uh, written it. But as a historian, I am, uh, of course, familiar with how the Nixon presidency ended. And as a citizen, I am familiar with the current state of the Republican Party and the perhaps the evolution of the Republican Party over the last couple of decades. But what your work really provides tremendous insight into is the Nixon before the Nixon that we all came to know, that is how the presidency ended, has defined the knowledge of Nixon. And your book is a just a, a profoundly, I think, important corrective to that. And to some extent, also for the broader Republican Party, if someone were to have been parachuted from Mars here today and saw the Republican Party in its card format, they would be surprised to learn the history of the Republican Party that's outlined in your book. So I think you've done two really important services as a historical corrective to making sure that people understand that kind of presentism, a crude presentism is, is not relevant, that there are trajectories. Uh, do you want to start a little bit with your fascinating personal trajectory of how you ended up in the, in the Nixon White House?
1: I'd be delighted. Uh, I was a sort of inchoate centrist, I guess, as I was growing up. I had not partisan parents, And uh, I was very much alert during the Eisenhower administration. And uh, I then at law school met up with a crowd of folks who had been aware of something in Britain called the Bow Group. And it was sort of attached to the Conservative Party over there, but it was meant to import ideas into the Conservative Party from academia. And that appealed to me. I'd always been sort of interested in policy. But I wound up, uh, like many of my friends there, uh, more on the moderate or liberal wing of the Republican Party. And I wound up actually working for Nelson Rockefeller, who was governor of New York. And at that point, sort of the, the main linchpin of the moderates or the the, the liberals in the party. And uh, Nixon was an afterthought to me. I, I had no strong impression, pro or con, about him. But uh, what I then happened to do was I ran a piece of Rockefeller's campaign against Nixon in 1968, and then Nixon, in a very ecumenical way, reached out to me and to others on the liberal side as well as on the very conservative side, and I wound up working in the general election campaign in 68. I was then asked to stay on in the White House and did so for the first three years.
0: And I, I have to say again, the degree to which Richard Nixon, in these early years, as opposed to his perception after the fall, the degree to which he was large tent Republican, reaching out and working with a wide range, almost uh, I'm going to say almost nonpartisan Republican, including, as will turn out, a kind of the, the, a figure of dominance in the book, a, a, a Democrat uh, who he thought had really good policy. Chops, and I think everyone agrees this person a really good policy chops. We'll get to that in a moment, but that that Nixon was really interested in in a broad tent, and that every fiber of his being was political. But that he came to the conclusion that um, the best politics appeared to be again at this stage. Perhaps he changed, and you did highlight a moment when you thought he kind of snapped and had change later in in seventy two. But that uh, that up to his up through this point, and for the first several years of his administration his consensus type politics was what was driving him. And he was as besieged on the right uh, as he was by Democrats and liberals. And it was really stunning to find him trying to navigate the middle. This phrase, navigating the middle, is uh, you know something we just wouldn't associate either with Richard Nixon or current politics on either side of the, the aisle.
1: Nixon himself lamented that he would be only remembered for Watergate, in China. And you've already made that point in your introduction. And he really represented what I would call the mid century presidential wing of the Republican Party. <clears throat> and a key figure in that was the party's candidate twice for presidency, Thomas Dewey, governor of New York, who was absolutely a progressive or a liberal. He was pro civil rights, he was very comfortable working with labor. And he was sort of the anti-Taft uh, figure in the party. And then Eisenhower was very much in that mold. Eisenhower broadly expanded the safety net, which the New Deal had put in place. Richard Nixon was absolutely a part of that. So you have that trajectory of Dewey, Eisenhower, into the Nixon uh, presidency.
0: And there, there is a, a counter trend. The Taft-Reagan wing gains strength. And Nixon in his early, again, in these first years, 69, 70, 71, he's reaching out to to Ronald Reagan. He's reaching out to policy conservatives. He's working, trying to bring them in in a brig tent fashion. But they, they, uh, over time, begin to uh, have more and more momentum, and he is less and less. And of course, that leads kind of in a trajectory to where we are currently. But uh, he seems to have been the last, perhaps, Republican president who was trying to hold it all together
1: yes and it wasn't and it wasn't just sort of trying to hold the middle <clears throat> he had some very personal very liberal instincts whether this came from his mother who was a quaker and a progressive republican whether it came from his returning from the war with the feeling that we just fought a world war we don't want to go to war against the new deal whatever it was it was there in him and it was uh, something he didn't wear on his sleeve, but it was a very, very important part of his makeup. He did have this liberal impulse to him. <clears throat> and uh, Pat Moynihan, whom we will get to in more detail, was someone whom he f- uh, chewed with. He was, an, they had a sparring partner relationship intellectually and talking about the substance and the policy. It wasn't just politics. Pat Buchanan, a name all of uh, your listeners will recognize, a very prominent arch conservative and and right winger, hard right, uh, was in the White House at the same time I was there. And I've asked Pat Buchanan whether he, Pat, agrees with my thesis that Richard Nixon was the last liberal Republican, last gasp of Eisenhower moderate Republicanism. And Pat Buchanan punched his forefinger into my lapel, and he said, you're absolutely right. He said, we, meaning the hard right, we were winning the political battles. You, and then he emphasized it with a push on my lapel, you were winning the policy battles.
0: And the, the the you was, uh, uh, very importantly, John Price. But there was another fellow, tall, from New York, with a bit of a, a colorful flair about him, who was standing side by side with you for much of this period, a personal hero of mine. And kind of a, a, a big figure in your book about this early, the first uh, administration of Richard Nixon and the policy side domestic policy side of Richard Nixon, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan is, is all over it. And It's a sign, again, of Richard Nixon bringing in a Democrat and a very strong-willed Democrat. But I think he brings him in for the reasons you very clearly articulate. Nixon wanted somebody smart, as it were, from the other side who he could spar with, who had a similarly hard upbringing, childhood. He really identified with Pat Moynihan, and they seem to have gotten on just just fine. Again, something that is almost inconceivable in today's political environment, and I I regret that deeply.
1: Moynihan had uh, gone so far as to have worked first for Bob Kennedy in the spring of 1968 against Richard Nixon on the other side, and after Kennedy's assassination for Hubert Humphrey against Richard Nixon. So right up to the end of the election day of 68, Moynihan had been working for the other side. And the fact is that uh, Nixon did reach out to him because of Something Moynihan had written a year and a half earlier, which was uh, sounding the toxin, sounding the alarm about the extremes taking over politics, about uh, people's religious fervor getting sublimated into political uh, nihilism and and, uh, political absolutism. And Nixon liked what Moynihan was saying, which was liberals and conservatives must get together To save the society, we have to keep it from the extremes, and they they brought out the better angels in one another.
0: And you are fair, I think, as a from the historical perspective. You point out there's a dark side to Richard Nixon, absolutely, and and uh, a grievance side, and that he worked very very hard to keep it in check for as long as he could. He had a long list of grievances and slights, uh, and nevertheless, he he climbed the greasy pole and made it to the top. But a couple setbacks and the dark side would come out. But it took a couple years for the setbacks. In the meantime, he was striving hard to put in a broad-based policy that we would currently consider liberal, also working on foreign policy issues. Your book doesn't address them as much as the domestic ones. But let's talk about the main foreign, the main domestic policy issue that that you and Pat Moynihan were tasked with, it it comes to take a name called family, the family assistance program, but it is just part of what we would now call a social support net. Tell us the story of how that came into being. Ultimately, it failed. It did not. Nixon did not get it through despite his efforts to reach out uh, across the aisle. Mostly, it was torpedoed by his own side. Uh, but of course, the the Democratic party at the time also was keen to find fault with with whatever was coming out of the White House, but mostly it, I think it failed because of, of his own side. But it was such a striking uh, policy initiative from a Republican president that you know I think it took everyone by surprise. Yes. Well, one should remember that
1: uh, as we have got an issue that is a hot button for so many today, namely immigration, back 50 years ago in the 1960s, the hot button was welfare, because what had been happening, particularly in northern cities, was this burgeoning of welfare rolls. And what Moynihan had noticed was that in the past, there had been a tracking, a correlation between unemployment rates. When they, unemployment went up, welfare rolls went up. But now he noticed in the mid-1960s that unemployment was going down but welfare rolls were going up. And that engendered all kinds of uh, you know political uh, discourse and anger and real upset. And so it was very much something Nixon knew he had to do something about. And what he finally embraced was a really very bipartisan idea, which had been uh, put forth by none other than Milton Friedman, a name that many may still remember, who was an icon of the right, He was at the Chicago uh, University School of Economics, and he, in 1962, proposed something called a negative income tax, a little bit like our EITC today, earned income tax credit, a little bit like our child tax credit in absolutely current topical discussion. And so uh, it was from the conservatives, but also many liberal economists who'd been on the Kennedy's and Johnson's Council of Economic Advisors uh, were proposing it. Lyndon Johnson uh, didn't want to have anything to do with it because he believed in a services strategy about poverty. Whereas Nixon and Moynihan believed that money, if you had money, that's what meant that you were no longer poor and it would begin to address the the key ingredients of poverty. And,
0: this is, I think, worth impor- interrupting, if I may, John, just for a moment. There's an important yes, distinction between the liberalism and the welfare state, as it were, established by Johnson, and the revisions to it or different ideal of that associated with Nixon. Yes. As you say, it's worth repeating. Uh, the Johnson administration set up a lot of services- uh, the, And evermore, and evermore. And evermore, which we, ones, we yeah. still have. And whereas the Nixon administration said, no, let's let's try something different here. It's to put more money in the hands of people so that they can can better themselves as opposed to just providing the services as Absolutely. a government as a government service
1: and so uh, what what Nixon and uh, Moynihan finally converged on was a cash assistance program, which basically very much in a way like what Mitt Romney's uh, talking about." Uh, it said, let's, let's forget about welfare. Let's forget about these categories, which in people's minds seem to say, ah, black, female-headed northern families. And Ronald Reagan talked about, uh, you know, welfare queens and really politicized it. What Nixon and Moynihan were trying to do were, was to say, "Whoa, let's try and get the racial element out of this. Let's talk about what the real issue is, which is poverty. The real issue is people are poor and that many states in the South, especially, were having welfare payments such as they gave them, uh, which were far below the federal standard of what what the poverty line was. So Nixon and Moynihan and Bob Finch and George Shultz.
0: Yes. Yes, folks. The George Shultz. The I remember. George
1: Shultz who just
0: died at age 101 this year. And George Shultz is uh, popularly known by his later jobs but by his earlier jobs uh, dean of the uh, university of chicago school of business labor secretary as well a prominent economist not just secretary of state
1: yes and george schultz was the one who kept insisting on providing help to the working poor and he and bob finch a california republican who was nixon's secretary of health education and welfare they kept saying What's wrong with Republicans helping people who are working, but who don't make enough money to even come up to the poverty line? So it was Nixon's idea and Moynihan's and Finch and George Schultz to collapse the welfare categories and to create a basically, you'd call it a guaranteed family income. And it was, it would have a floor which may have seemed low and certainly did to the liberal Democrats, but it was a principle that Nixon sought to establish, that you would have a, an income-tested floor under all families with children so that as you earned more, the support that you got in cash from the feds would decline. And that's, that's very much back in discussion today.
0: Andrew Yang, do you know that you're, you're drawing on Richard Nixon's game plan? I suspect not. And Milton Friedman's.
1: <laughs> and ironically, thank you, Andrew Yang. But uh, ironically, uh, if you can believe it, Mitt Romney, when he proposed his child tax credit, he's called it the family security plan, a family security system. Richard Nixon, until two days before we announced the program in August of 1969, we called it the family security system.
0: And so it 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 takes on the name Family Assistance. Maybe Security would have been a better name. I Maybe think there was sure. a yeah. And in the same way that the later Ehrlichman and later Haldeman uh, are known only by virtue of Watergate, the late the early Haldeman and Ehrlichman have significant administrative and policy roles in the Nixon administration. Yes,
1: more policy for Ehrlichman, more administrative for Haldeman. But Ehrlichman was absolutely crucial in uh, getting this family assistance plan across the goal line in terms of the president embracing it and promoting
0: it. And then you start, you, uh, in particular, Moynihan, but also the political apparatus of the White House, begin the process of trying to get it through the House and Senate. And that pro- they just weren't expecting this from Richard Nixon. And no. uh, they weren't expecting this from this White House. And nobody liked it, even though it's pretty much what you would consider a liberal agenda, something the Democrats should have embraced. And again, it seemed to me, and maybe I'm misreading it, but uh, 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 the real stumbling blocks were, were from the president's own cabinet, his vice president, who Spiro Agnew, also known by how he failed, not by how he rose. Spiro Agnew turns out to have some sort of conservative policy agenda. Nobody knows of Spiro Agnew's conservative policy agenda. Everyone just knows him as he ended, but he apparently was a force of conservatism in the administration, not just Pat Buchanan. And then uh, the other cabinet secretaries weren't necessarily thrilled about this. And so it was an uphill fight from the beginning and it just seemed to, to, to take yeah. a lot of time and energy.
1: Yes. Uh, Nixon uh, complained to Moynihan. He said at one point, Why is the vice president so whiny about this? Uh, And he also said that he, Nixon, had only three members of the cabinet supporting his idea, but he said, we're going to do it anyway. I know it's not perfect, but we've got to try it. And he also uh, said to me on Christmas Eve of 1969, he said, John, we're going to get family assistance. He thought the Democrats had to
0: go along views is similar to their policies or proposals, but coming from a Republican White House, they might not have seen it that way.
1: And and he he accepted that in, in a sense. And he said to me, you know, every year, if we get family assistance, and we will, he kept asserting, if we get family assistance, every year, the Democrats are going to move to raise the floor. And every year, he said, the Republicans will fight that. And every year, the Republicans will lose. And he said, but you know something? That's not the important thing. The important thing is that we will have established the principle, the principle of direct cash assistance to the poor.
0: There's a point where you say you thought he would like to be almost on his gravestone, remembered for the Nixon family assistance program, that it would be the defining characteristic of his presidency. He said
1: to Pat Moynihan, uh, this will be, quote, our monument, close quote, our monument. And he really, he really believed that. And the conservatives themselves repeatedly wrote that he, Nixon, fought for it, quote, not incompetently, close quote, for two years and more. He was fighting for it. He believed in it, they said. And he also uh, did the same kind of thing with the food stamp program. He took a completely hodgepodge program where many, many counties did not even have food stamps for the poor and he rationalized it into a, a system which had uniform eligibility standards, uniform benefits standards, and it, it that one did make it. That one survived into statute, and it's called the SNAP program today still. That's Richard Nixon.
0: Let's go back a little bit to the, to the pre-Watergate Nixon. Again, the personality that emerges, even though there are storm clouds on the horizon, the personality that emerges is just so different from the the stereotype the caricature, uh, charming, engaging, very policy oriented. Uh, read the policy papers. When was the last time we did president
1: policy? Yeah, he he was he was an avid reader. I mean, he he got besieged with memoranda and briefing papers, uh, arguing pro and con on on the family assistance plan, but on many 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 other things too. Uh, charming, engaging, maybe a little bit strong. He was uh, somewhat. Nervous in his interaction with lots of people, but and insecure in ways. but he also had a generosity which I became aware of, uh, uh, just a, a personal empathy with people, which many others have have not had and many did not see in him. He Murray Kempton, who was a journalist at the time, lost his son at one point. and he Murray Kempton told of how uh, the day after this was learned, that he heard something at the door of his apartment in New York and a uh, an envelope had been slipped under the door. It was a handwritten note of, of sympathy from Richard Nixon.
0: For those of you who don't know who Mary Kempton is, very liberal, a spectacular wordsmith, and basically would have been an opponent of Richard Nixon. And so for Nixon to have done this, it was a, a testament to to his uh, character. Anything that Mary Kempton has Written, you may not agree with it, but it's worth reading just because of how how he he wrote. So the the Nixon again comes out. uh, Even though there are grudges and the resentments, it's fine that you, John Price, would have had developed a warm relationship with him because even though you're from from all over, but from the from a graduate of Grinnell College, you quickly developed the attributes that he appeared to resent in other people's uh, Oxford, Rhodes Scholar, Harvard Law School, everything uh, Richard Nixon, Northeast establishment, you, that, that Republican, he, yes. Repu- liberal Northeast Republican, a Dewey Republican, a Rockefeller Republican.
1: Who'd, who'd worked against him for the nomination. I was Director of Delegate Intelligence for Nelson Rockefeller's 68 campaign against him
0: and go figure he invites you into the, the white house and seems to encourage you as much as he can for the three years that you're there i mean that itself is a testament to a, a kind of a wide-ranging political approach
1: yes i i was uh, as i look back on it one of the most touching and meaningful moments was uh, right after the announcement of the family assistance plan he had asked me he nixon had asked me to prepare briefing notes briefing papers For him to meet with Ronald Reagan three days after the announcement. And he asked me to come to that meeting. It was at San Clemente uh, in his office out on the West Coast. And so I was there sitting when Nixon briefed Reagan, trying to bring Reagan and the conservatives on board with this sweeping proposal. And in the room were John Ehrlichman, George Shultz, Arthur Burns, later became head of the Fed, and myself, and then some Reagan people. And I, I really felt at that point, we, I was looking out the window and we were at sea level and there was this fabulous uh, slice of Pacific coastline for surfers, the best surfing in America. So there I was at sea level, but I felt as though I were on top of a continental divide where down one side continued Nixon's belief that the federal government had a role to perform in addressing people's basic human needs. And on the other side of the continental divide was the direction which the party took for the next 50 years. Reagan used Nixon's welfare reform as a means by which to slowly start peeling away Republicans from the vision that Nixon had and tried to implement during the early years of his presidency.
0: So you don't spend much time on that, the downstroke, other than the, the math of not getting the FAP through. But you do reference what you thought was a turning point in his attitude. And I thought that was a really interesting story. It, it was 1970, Nineteen seventy during the, uh,
1: the congressional and Senate elections and gubernatorials that year. And uh, he had had a bad year. Because I think in his own mind, he really thought he was trying to end the Vietnam War. But that was not the way the war protesters viewed it. And it was getting ever more bilious and angry and even violent to the point where his daughter, who was graduating that June from Smith College, said, Dad, I don't think we dare have you come to campus. There might be violence. The same thing with David Eisenhower, his graduation at his college nearby he said the same thing. He said, I don't think you can dare come to our college graduation. And so there was that, which was just, you know, something about which he would be bilious and frustrated. And uh, the campaign just was not going well. And so he had this this uh, a moment when I say he curdled at a rally in uh, the peninsula in Bay Area in California and just, uh, you know, relished the animus and the hatred that he generated in the crowd. And he stopped reaching out after that. He had, up until then, his appointment secretary, Dwight Chapin, told me he'd been, as I knew, he'd been bringing in all kinds of people Often,
0: Bella Abzug.
1: Bella Abzug was a congresswoman from the Upper West Side of Manhattan who was a battle. Well, she was a brawler and a very very liberal lady she had not voted for a single defense appropriations bill in the entire time she was in congress and uh, nixon turned around to to a cabinet meeting i was sitting on the wall and and uh, at the wall and he said you know tomorrow's excited i'm excited because it's the last of the uh, breakfasts I'm having with every member of Congress. I've invited every member of Congress. And he said, tomorrow I'm excited because Bella's coming. And uh, Bryce Harlow, who was the head of congressional relations for Richard Nixon, was sitting next to me, turned to me and said, who's Bella? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it stupefied
0: me. that <laughs> he did not know
1: exactly the head of congressional relations for the president. And here's the president saying, I can't wait to meet Bella. You know, she's a, she's quite a force. And, um, but the point is that he then turned away from that outreach and he became much more reclusive and, uh, remote. And I, I must say that the best, if I can recall it, I mean, it may take me a second or two, but among the best summations in a way of Richard Nixon that I ever had was from his former law partner, Len Garment. And Len was a Democrat from New York and head of litigation at the firm that Nixon joined and of which he became named partner in New York. And Len said to me at one point, right after that 1970 incident, he said, you know, what's so amazing about that man is the changes, the changes. And he said, it's the good and evil that is in every one of us and that is in the country as a whole. He said he moves from rage to generosity and from eloquence to something other. It's just who he is.
0: Well, that's a profound statement. And again, it, uh, a corrective, a necessary corrective to the uh, one-sided view that is easier for people to think about in terms of politicians, particularly in a polarized society where you just want to vilify your your opponent and, and make them more than your opponent, you want to make them evil. But again, at least in those few early years, strikingly open, big tent, policy driven. Nixon, we did not know. You knew because it was you were there. Somewhat to my surprise. Somewhat to my surprise. John, you've written this book. It's part memoir, it's part policy history, it's part political history. There are fascinating early chapters on how we got to this stage involving Taft versus Dewey and Eisenhower's role and so forth. You know what? I am reading it with a presentist agenda. The current country politically is in a mess, <laughs> has been for a number of years. And I, I did read this book. I'm not supposed to, as a historian, I'm supposed to appreciate it's in its own context, but I, I really read it in a presentist agenda. And I just wanted to give you the platform, whether you wrote it, as in a presentist agenda or just as a memoir, because it's a a wonderful memoir of your experiences, Uh, but I I think kind of give you the floor as we wrap up on any implications or or consequences you would like to see come from this book.
1: Well, first, I would love to see people thinking that there is some resonance today to some of the specific things that Nixon tried to do about people at the margins uh, for whom a social contract is essential for government to be respected and for institutions to be regarded with confidence. We just don't have that today. So I would love for people to to say, look, even 50 years later, there's some actual concrete things here that he's talking about, which are right with us again today. And then beyond that is the point that, despite his partisanship, which could be, you know, really raw at times, despite that, he was trying to govern from the center, because he believed that ultimately, that's where the the resonance uh, would be found. That that's where people wanted government to be, and so he, for example, uh, he never would have dreamed of contesting the election. He thought about it in 1960 when he lost narrowly to Kennedy.
0: In Chicago, Illinois, which is uh, an interesting place to lose an election.
1: But the point is that a friend of mine whom I knew personally, a senior lawyer, said that uh, Nixon had sent him out to look at Chicago and he came back and told Nixon, he said, there is more than ample ground for you to mount a challenge to the election results in Cook County, which would overturn that result, which would result in you getting the presidency. Nixon pondered briefly, and he said, no. He said, I cannot put the country through that kind of tumult. We cannot afford another uh, Hayes-Tilden 1876 uh, situation where it took months and months and months for it to be resolved finally in the House. And he said, no, no, let's move on.
0: And in in some ways, we have moved on, not necessarily to a better place uh, politically. Uh, The book is The Last Liberal Republican, an insider's perspective on Nixon's surprising social policy by John Roy Price. Thank you, John, so much for writing this book, and thank you for for being a, a guest on my show.
1: Thank you for the opportunity, Dan.